Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke. All right. Hi, everybody. Chris, alcoholic. Hi, Chris. It's my solemn duty tonight to read you a joke from the AA-approved book, A Rabbit Walks Into a Bar. I dialed the number of a newcomer and got the following recording. If I'm not available right now, thank you for caring enough to call. I am making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of the changes. Thanks. Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Marianne. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
So I'm going to lead you in the fog light prayer. It's on the screen here and the one here. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those whom are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I have asked Robert to read Appendix to the Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it is kind of important to know what one is. My name is Robert and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden or spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described though it was not our intention to create such an impression. Many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change would, could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With a few exceptions, our members find that there have been, they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think that this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of the spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it the God consciousness. Most empathetically, we wish to say that an alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to his spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and an open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance, that principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. 
This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane meeting mode or just turn it off. So right now, um, for his ninth session, I'd like to bring up not only my husband, my best friend, but my shoulder-to-shoulder on this journey. And um, that's the beautiful thing about this, that we get to walk this um, hand-in-hand. So I bring you Peter M. All right. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, uh, thank Alcoholics and God for having me back here. Uh, I think I said last week, it's pretty much my favorite day of the week knowing I'm coming here tonight, whether I'm sitting in the back taking inventory or, uh, you know, I, I get to speak. So it's really cool to be here. And again, the trusted servants here do a, a fabulous job. Uh, June 23rd, 1988 is when God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Um, And I've said this a million times, the longer I'm sober, the older I'm getting. I find myself especially more grateful uh, to God for the many things uh, he's continued to remove from me and the things he's inspired me to take care of. Uh, uh, with relationships over and over and over again I'm finding out how important relationships are not only in in AA but just relationships in life the whole spiritual walk is about cleaning up old scrapes forgiving people for the wrongs they've caused us because I know I want forgiveness when I go to them and whether they speak to me again or not that's okay I just can't have any plaque on my soul and uh, I owe so much to Alcoholics Anonymous including taking away the, the idea of money, property, and prestige will somehow fix the soul. And very often, it's the very thing that taints the soul. Uh, I need to be able to do this walk alone and in the raw and completely dependent upon God. So um, <clears throat> I do have a sponsor. spoke to him a little while ago, and um, I, I'm under his tutelage, if you will. I've always had a sponsor. Other than my first six months in AA, um, when I was kind of floundering and thinking meetings would fix me alone, meetings alone would fix me. I've always had a sponsor. I, I can't fathom this journey without having a sponsor or sponsoring men. Um, in the morning, what I do after prayer meditation, not every morning, um, just it happens, and I'm unaware of I'm doing it until I'm done with it. Um, very often when I get up off the mat from meditation, um, I have an office, uh, a little home office with my prayer room. It's where I do a lot of my reading and listening. And I'll sit in this chair and um, I get to uh, communicate with God without saying a word. It's contemplative prayer. I wasn't completely unaware of this for the longest time. And I, I'm just listening and speaking without saying a word uh, where we actually get to become kind of like part of the prayer. And uh, sometimes it's a reflection, but not morbid reflection. That's a whole narrative that can happen. And uh, very often when I'm done with that, uh, I might be inspired to listen to someone or read something. And uh, about a week or so ago, I have all my books on my desk, and this 12 and 12 is like, read me. And um, so I open it up, and, you know, you just kind of like, going through the pages, and I catch something. It's in the 11th step, 
And I don't know why I get pulled to this page, but I did. And I just want to share it with you. And I was looking at the last uh, sentence of it, and I had to read the whole paragraph. And it says this, Perhaps one of the greatest rewards of meditation and prayer is the sense of belonging that comes to us. We no longer live in in a completely hostile world. We are no longer lost and frightened and purposeless. The moment we catch even a glimpse of God's will, the moment we begin to see truth, justice, and love as the real and eternal things in life, we are no longer deeply disturbed by all the seeming evidence to the contrary that surrounds us in purely human affairs. And then he says this, we know that God lovingly watches over us. We know that when we turn to him, all will be well with us here and the hereafter. And I read that and it just stood with me because for me, it really encompasses my whole walk, this whole journey, this whole spiritual walk. It seems to be when I'm centered in God rather than centered in me, there's a lot of moving parts in the world. It's hostile. We live in a world of impermanence. It seems to be unfair, unexpected things happening. I'm walking down the road and suddenly I fall in a ditch. I didn't even see it. With all of that that's going on, it's insane for me to try to control and manage that. But somehow, when I get small in here, when I get small right size, and I'm living, I begin to living from the soul, and I know that God is, I'm conscious with God. I have conscious contact with God. All the other stuff kind of get to where the world like a loose government. When I get to a place of convinced that God, I'm important to God, and he's watching every move I make and guiding me and steering me lovingly and not giving me everything I want because it might destroy me, but providing me with everything I think I need, everything I need and to bear witness to others, suddenly the, 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 the world out there isn't that important. And the, the, the variables that happen, I don't have to ride on every one. The walk in Alcoholics Anonymous, the walk out there, the walk in my home's occupations and affairs, it's a different walk. It's a lighter walk. It's a connected walk with God. And for me, as I said, it encompasses everything that God had, this journey God has put me on. Now we have mechanics and they're vital and I need to get mechanics to get rid of me and get more of God, the death of self-will for successful living. But it's so easy to fall into worshiping mechanics rather than the power who's walking me through the mechanics. So where am I with God? And this is an 11-step reading, but doesn't it apply to everything I'm doing? Especially if whether I have a new, I'm a newcomer with 30 days, I'm here for 30 years. It's all about this work taking me to this power and having conscious contact with God in, in thought, word, and deed in all that I do. To the point where I can't hate anymore. To the point where I can't stand prejudice anymore. To the point where I can't stand people who are intolerant of other people or bigotry and things like that, right in AA and out there, that the soul is leading me, and it's, it's, it's inappropriate. I can't go along with this. I can't be a part of the gossip. I can't be part of the slandering anymore. And I do none of this perfect because I get angry sometimes, and I get hurt sometimes. And if you cut me, I bleed blood, believe it or not. But the overall snapshot of my life looks completely different than when I got here in 1988 because I wasn't sure about how to get this God, how to find this God, have a relationship with God, how to practice fidelity to God. How do you do all of this? And little by slowly, by chopping wood and carrying water, God little by slowly has transformed me with all the cracks in the armor 
to be certain that my number one priority in life is to have conscious contact with God. It's the thing that allows me to go out and knock on somebody's door with hat in hand to make amends properly and not looking for something in it for me. It's the thing that allows me to clean up the wreckage of my past. It's the thing that has made me change, which is a real big part of amends, not only repairing but changing, that when I go to these patients, I'm a changed man. And it's not by the clothes I'm wearing, but it's the spirit that speaks louder than any word I can talk about. When we look at step nine, it speaks louder than any actions. It speaks louder than any words I can come up with. But it definitely points to something greater than AA that's working, and it's God who watches over all of us, watches over Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, we're, I think we're 87 now, if my math is right, we're 87 years old with all the changes. I was listening uh, a while ago to a talk by Bill Wilson, and he gave a talk, it was in the 1950s, and he said something like, we're living in troubled times, uncertain times. That was the 50s. We're in 2020, uncertain times. Nothing's changed. It's still madness out there, but AA keeps putting one foot in front of the other. And we're going to be able to, we continue to change and evolve and change and evolve and put some, some new wrinkles to be more inclusive. But this never changes because it's the direct path to God. I was sitting in, in this, this con- contemplative place and getting into some reflection. And for some reason, uh, it's a couple of weeks now, uh, my mom, who's passed on, has been like right here. And uh, also thinking about my dad, I spoke to him on Tuesday, uh, about four o'clock he had called me. And uh, during a 20-minute conversation, um, I could hear his voice, it's not strong anymore. He'll be 85, uh, God willing, in November. This was a rough, tough, alpha male, take charge guy, fearless. And his voice doesn't sound strong. And he told me the same story three times over that phone call. And then he'd pop out. And he was Vic Marinelli. I could see him smoking a cigarette, and, and he's Robert De Niro all over again. And then he told me the same story again. And then he forgot what he was... And what I need to do as part of this living amends, although it, it hurts my heart, is not remind him, you just told me this story, but just to listen. And just talk. As if I'm hearing it for the first time. Because there were so many times this guy picked me up out of the street, bailed me out of jail, took me back in, loaned me money, denied me all the things to try to save my life, and the patience of a saint to deal with me in the grip of my alcoholism. The very least I can do is live this amends and be a son. I think about what I, what I did to my brothers and how important it is because we're so close to be a brother to them. I don't have to take the lead all the time. I can follow which I do sometimes, but just be a member among members with my brothers. And I remember growing up, um, it was coming to me earlier, uh, growing up, uh, the day school ended, we used to go for crew cuts. It was a rite of passage. You got a crew cut the last day of school, and we loved it because it meant summer was here and school was over. So me and my brothers going to the barber shop, my mom get the whole head shaved. I remember coming out of the bathroom, my mom says, brush your eyes, I have no hair. She's no train your hair. That's why I'm so compulsive, because I had a crew cut and I got a brush, and I'm brushing my hair. And there were times growing up um, that were very uncertain. Uh, my mom would pop in and out of uh, being okay. She had uh, mental health issues and uh, a narcotic issue and an alcoholic. I remember one night, uh, there was a big commotion. I don't know what time it was, 10 or 11 o'clock. 
<clears throat> I hear banging. My dad had to break down the bathroom door. My grandparents came, came up and kept us in the bedroom because they didn't want us to see. Uh, my mom was out cold, unconscious on the floor, and uh, uh, there were pills all over the place. She was trying to take her life again and the cutting of the wrists and all that other stuff. And my dad dealt with all of that. I remember one Thanksgiving, my mom was serving dinner. As a little guy, you're not really sure what's up, but you know mom's not right because her eyes are kind of rolling up in her head and she's white as a ghost and about 20 pounds soaking wet. And she always looked proper and pretty. And I'm saying, this is a ghost of mine. What the heck is going on? There's a lot of uncertainty. And for some reason, I always had empathy. I never hated her for it. It was almost prophetic because I was going to wind up in that same place too a few years later. And my dad tried to hold all that together as best he could. And so my job is to try to hold him together now. I remember one time, in the, I was going into the uh, fifth grade, I finished fifth grade, and I was begging to grow my hair long. I was into music. I was into hippies. I was into Woodstock. I was, I think, the only kid in the third grade who was listening to, like, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the whole scene that was happening. I wanted bell-bottoms, hippie beads, hair. And my mom took my dad into growing my hair long. He says, only a little over the ear. And when I went to school in September to start the sixth grade, I thought I was going to be all that. I was the only guy with long, hippie hair. Everyone had long hair. No one had short hair. My cover was blown again. But um, then I got to high school. And you start school in September, and it was really bad at home. Um, my dad was go wasn't going to work anymore because he was trying to stay home with my mom because in the middle of the night, she'd run away. Or in the middle of the night, she'd go into the bathroom and try to cut her wrist or take a whole bunch of pills to die, and she wasn't getting out of bed. And um, I start school in September, and I'm about to start high school, and my, my life is blowing up in front of me. And then in January of that year, she was gone. And I, I share this because everything turned inside out for me. It was completely upside down. I didn't have a really good relationship. My dad, I was petrified of him. He was a tough guy. I had two younger brothers who attached themselves to my hip, and I'm trying to find my own way. I don't know how to lead anymore. And this God who I was told to pray to, who loves me, who casts me, and all things are possible with God, he's a merciful God, and I saw what he just did to my mom, and it all came back to me. This is not one time. This is years of suffering. What the heck kind of God is this? And that's when a lot of adolescents move away from their religion. I wanted no part of it anymore because this God was nonsense. This merciful God let this happen. I'm stuck with this guy called that, and life petrified me. And then I took my first drunk. Yeah? I took my first drunk and it all went away. And in a few short years, my dad was dealing with me and all of what I had to do, go through. Car crashes, fights, homelessness, treatment center after treatment center, cursing my family out. Pass, I almost drowned in a bowl of soup one time. I was so loaded. You know, I just passed face down in a bowl of soup. And I'm embarrassing scenes. But he, he stood with me through all of that. And uh, I get into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, thank you, God. And the very same God I hated was the very same God I went back to. And I can't fathom life without God anymore. I've never met God. I feel like he's come to me in meditation. I feel like I've seen him working. I feel like I've heard his voice. Some people might tell me I'm Looney Tunes. I don't think I am. 
but I'd rather bear the pain of waiting for God than bear the pain of going on without God. And so I chop wood and carry water, and I'm going into the steps, and I'm starting to go to the steps, and I'm looking at step four, and I'm looking at where I was at faults over and over and over again. And what begins to happen, my story, Sandy B. would always say this. We talk about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, and as we start to wake up, it's what I think it looked like because I get a new pair of glasses. I'm starting to look in at my life rather than out from it, and I start to get a new set of conceptions, a new point of view on exactly what took place. I always thought for years my dad was gunning for me, but he was trying to save my life and bring me and my brothers up with the limited tools he had. There was no manual. This is how you raise three boys without a mom. And he's trying to live the street life, trying to hold down a job and raise three kids. What, a, what an order. How the heck did he go through with it? A lot of men would have packed and left. One of the greatest things I've learned from my old man is loyalty. And so he was loyal in that. And I remember going, getting up to, you know, working through the steps and going to my family members in step nine. And I think I shared this last week. My sponsor suggested that before I go to my dad and make amends, walk the walk because he's heard every apology. I've raised my family's hopes up when I go into treatment and the bottom falls out when I come out of treatment because I was drunk within an hour and another debacle. And while I'm in treatment, you know, anyone's been in treatment, we get very religious and very holy and very hopeful. I'm never going to do this again. I learned my lesson. I found the Lord. Then we get discharged and we find Flacco and cop drugs. <laughs> they heard it all. It was to walk, to walk. And I stopped doing what AA told me to do. I went to work early and left late at my job when I finally got a job back. And I was invited for Christmas or a birthday party. I showed up when I said I was going to show up. Eight o'clock, I was there at eight o'clock. I didn't boogie early. I waited for the party to break up and then I left. I was showing up like I was told to do in AA. I had to do that home. And those actions spoke louder than any words or sermon I can come up with. They spoke louder than any apology. I was there. I was showing up. I would get paid and have money from the, the previous payday. And I was taking that money and putting it in a bank account. I began to pay my own rent. I was no longer borrowing money off of anyone. I was self-supporting through my own contributions. I was going to work clean-shaven and dressed for work. Work clothes, but dressed with clean clothes. And my dad would ask me, what did you do last night? I went to an AA meeting. I was with my sponsor. went to the diner. I came home. I remember a few times my dad would call me like 10 o'clock at night. I said, why is he calling me now? I know why he was calling me, to see if I was really home. Because the trust bond was so shattered, little by solely by the actions God allowed me to take, the walk he allowed me to walk, that bond started to get back together. My dad doesn't call me 10 o'clock at night anymore to see if I'm home. He knows I'm home with Marion. He knows I'm not, you know, gallivanting in a neighborhood anymore. And he knows on Sunday at 6 o'clock, if I'm not on the road, you will find me in my Catholic Mass. He still doesn't understand why I travel so much to all these conferences that he'll never get. He doesn't have to. It's what I need to do, what I get to do. And I finally sat with my dad, and then he stopped me just a few sentences into the amends, and he went on to praise Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think I shared this last week at my wedding. Um, Stevie was there. A bunch of us were there. And my dad kept telling me he was praising all of you, how much integrity we had, how respect. That was his big word. My dad's big on respect. How much respect these people had. And he would say, 
these are all drunks? <laughs> I said, yeah. I remember a friend of mine from Brooklyn, she sat down, she just walked in. You know when we sit down, we start, we just air each other's laundry out. And she's telling me about, oh, I remember this, and the time I got drunk and I got arrested, and my dad's sitting next to me, he's going, she's one too? (laughs) But our, our actions spoke louder than any words. And that's just God watching over us right now. And it takes me some, took me some time to touch that, to actually feel that where it's tangible. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, God wasn't tangible. I'm praying to space. For anyone who's new, I'm here to bear witness. God is very tangible. As tangible as my wife sitting in that chair or Zach sitting in that chair. That's how tangible God is. But I need to get me out of the way and let the soul do the walking. And it's really unbelievable. I want to practice fidelity to God. I don't want to put money, property, or prestige before God. I want to please God. That's my walk. I want to please God. And I found that it's not a difficult task to please God, to please the boss, to please the kids, to please the in-laws. Difficult work. To please God isn't so difficult. Just love others as he loves us. Done. But as an alcoholic, that's like what an order I can't go through. Once the spirit, aw- <laughs> once the spirit awakens, that wasn't even a joke, and you laugh. Thank you. Where's the joke teller? It's the rhythm, buddy. Where's the joke teller? You're not reading an obituary. You're reading a joke. Okay. Oof. It's not much to please God. There's a great story I heard uh, a long time ago. I don't know where this person got the story from. Or maybe I read it. I don't remember. It was so long ago. But this man uh, goes to his best friend, and he he tells him, he says, I'm tired of the way I'm living. He said, I've been hurting a lot of people. I want to change my life. Can you tell me all the harms I've committed? There's so many I forgot. And the guy thinks for a minute and starts rolling off all the harms this guy's committed, one after the other. Then that same guy goes before the Lord, and he says, God, I've done so many sinful things. Can you tell me all the terrible things I've done? And God's reply is, I don't remember. It's easy to please God. It comes down to do I want to. It's really unbelievable for me. One of the greatest freedoms I've experienced is once I know all I have to do is please God, I'm not worried about being a people pleaser anymore because those who will walk with me will walk with me. Those who won't, won't. I mean, we want to please our friends, please the wife, please the husband. Of course we do. But it's not I'm attached to. I got to get them to like me to feel okay in here when God's love is greater than all of it combined. And the great thing about making amends, as I walk through the amends, it says, as I clean up the wreckage of our past, we enter the world of the Spirit. Because I'm traveling lighter, I can't fit anything through an eye of a needle. I need to walk through raw. I can't take stuff with me. And it seems to be the more amends I make, the lighter I get, the freer I am. I start to hear better. I start to see better. I start to speak different. My whole deportment shouts, I'm a man or maybe a woman with a real answer. It's just a walk. It's changed. 
I had to take a good hard look at cleaning up amends, the wreckage of my past. Though I believe that has anything to do with me drinking again or not. I see a lot of cats go through the steps and they wind up in treatment. They say the steps don't work. I asked them, what happened with amends? Uh, that means you didn't make any. Well, I had a whole bunch of amends I never got to. it. No kidding, you got drunk. How could I live now crushed by the weight of the past? How could I live now knowing what I did then? I'm not free. What I am doing is using me to keep me sober. I'm back into managing my life. I'll do the steps so that happens. I'm feeling okay, so I'll wait a little while. It's me managing. I'm playing God. And when that happens, I drink because I'm an alcoholic. Conversely, I've met lots of people who go through the steps like, that, like lives depended on it. I'm one of them and look to clean up the wreckage of the past. Even it seems really trivial, a little Mickey Mouse thing that I did, I'm going to suit up and show up and clean that up as best as God allows me. And I'm doing drive-by amends, and I'm cleaning up the wreckage of the past. Suddenly, my walk now changes, and I'm lighter. And what it does, that wedge, if you will, there's really no distance between us and God. We're closer. He's closer to me than my own breath. But figuratively speaking, that wedge that's between me and God, it little by slowly is getting pulled out. It's getting shaved down. When our book says we begin to feel the nearness of our creator, it's not that I have to get close to be close. I'm experiencing how close he was all along. Guys, when I was living in an abandoned building a whole bunch of years ago, I had just as much God in me that day as I do right now. The difference is awakening to it. It's, oh my God, it's God. And I get to do this. It's unbelievable. You speak to civilians out there who are having a tough time. They got to go to therapy and they got to hash it out. They get all these positive affirmation assignments and all this stuff. I screw up royally. I come in here and I got a leg up on everyone. It's almost unfair. Day one, God, okay? Day two, steps. 90 days, I'm free. <clears throat> so I began making amends. And the thing about amends is I have no right to save my own skin. Our book says it's someone else's expense. I can't knock on the ex-girlfriend's door and say, remember me. And she has someone there. Or maybe those times we were wild and, you know, we called them one night stands and I, and I shacked up with somebody and say, remember that time we went to that moat? I, I can't do that. How would I want be approached if the shoe was on the other foot? I don't know if she has children or a husband or a boyfriend right now. I can't just send a little Facebook message or an email because I don't know who's reading that. I need to be really careful. And some of them I just have to hold in here and just change the behavior towards the opposite sex. They also don't come in my time either. I'm willing, but I can't find this person. And the first time through the work, there was no Facebook. I didn't have a cell phone. It was a little bit more challenging to find people, which was kind of cool, actually. <laughs> but these people will show up in God's time and in his way. And I have no right to kick someone's door open so I get a nine-step uh, notch on my belt and come and tell you, and I have to go back and make amends for making amends. I have to be tactful and respectful. Our book says we don't bow before anyone, though. I'm not there to be abused, but I can take a little heat. I took enough heat out there. When the police arrest you and say, hey, listen, we're going to arrest you. Is that okay? They arrest you. 
And when you're taking non-conference approved dry goods, you don't have enough money. Flacco doesn't want to deal with you. So I can take a little heat and sobriety for something that I caused. When I was in our treatment, I decided one time to go over the wall and run away. It wasn't really over the wall. It was bushes about that high. And, uh, <laughs> and I made a plan. I actually convinced the other clients to give me a couple of bucks. I got to get out of here. And they gave me a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. I had about ten dollars on me. And they would take us from the treatment center across the yard to the gymnasium. It was a tough time at a treatment center, tennis courts in the gym. And I'm complaining because that's what I did. I was always unsatisfied with everything. And I wasn't ready to stop. So I gave, I gave run, and I ran about 150 yards the wrong way. I had to go from, like, here to the wall, and I ran the wrong way, story of my life. And this guy, John, is, is in pursuit of me. Now, I thought I could outrun him. I had, I'm detoxing. I got three days from detox. I can't even walk. <laughs> and he's just jogging. I found out years later, he was a mar- professional marathon guy. He could have ran to Timbuktu. And he's running, and he's pleading with me, please don't go, please don't go. And I get to the exit, and I'm cursing him. Every ugly word you can think of. What I thought of him, this place, and the whole AA thing, and God. And he's not paying attention. He's, please don't leave, please don't leave, and off I go. And I returned a couple of weeks later in worse shape. What I didn't know is they called me into the office that he almost lost his job. H Human Resources wrote him up. They could get sued for things like that. It was a liability thing. And I, I really, I don't care. I really don't care. I don't want to be here now. Then I get sober in 1988, and this guy John's on the list. And I start writing letters and making phone calls. And they would, I would get responses like, he's on vacation, he doesn't work here anymore, he's not in the office, all these different answers. My sponsor how many times you try this? Three times. He's leave it alone. It's not time. God is not making the ground fertile for you yet. I moved on. 18 years into sobriety, I'm working for my sponsor. He had a treatment center in Texas, and I'm doing a lot of Northeast marketing. I hated marketing. I felt like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, but I'm trying to make a living. And I go back to my alma mater, which is in Harvard University. It's South Oaks Hospital. I went to treatment seven times. And um, I decide to go there and see if I could do some marketing. And I'm driving uh, from uh, either Staten Island or New Jersey to Amityville, Long Island. That's a really, really long drive. So I leave early, anticipating traffic. I get there in like 15 minutes. No traffic. I show up like two or three hours early for my scheduled appointment. And I say, I can't walk in there now. I look like a fool walking in this early. I'll go to the diner, have coffee, make some calls, whatever I have to do. And I couldn't. I grab my duffel bag, and I couldn't drive away. Something says, go in now. I grab my duffel bag, I'm walking in, and who's walking out is John. And I introduced myself, and he remembered me. He says, you just caught me, I was leaving for the day. I would have never saw him. And I began the approach, and I went to make amends. What can I do to make it right was one of the things that are key here. What can I do to make this right? He was thrilled I was in the business. He was more thrilled I was sober as long as I was. He wished me well. He gave me a hug. 
He walked away, got in his truck, drove away. I did my marketing for the day. I remember driving home later that day, and I'm on the uh, Long Island Expressway, whatever the heck it is, heading back home, and uh, be alone at perfect peace and ease. The world got quiet. I'm working. I'm employed. I gave a full day's work. I cleaned up a big piece of my past that brought me shame and embarrassment, remorse and guilt, and what a fool I was. I jeopardized someone's career because of my nonsense. It was done, and I began to weep out of nowhere. I just start weeping, joyful tears on how free God has made me and how grateful I am that he put me in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. If John, if he's still alive, walked in this room, I could walk over, shake his hand, give him a cup of coffee and introduce him to you and not have anything between us. I was a free man at last. And over and over and over again, some of the amends were challenging. One guy read me the riot act. Some said, don't come back here anymore. But I was free. I've done my part. It's water over the dam. I went to all the longshoremen I work with. I borrowed money, never paid back. Truck drivers borrowed money, never made back. And I'm paying back everyone with interest. What can I do to make it right? There's anything you need to tell me. I've harmed you. I'm sober. I'm living a different life. I need to fix this. I never led with this. I'm in AA, and if I don't do this, I'm going to get drunk. That's all about me again. It's inconsiderate. Well, July 14th is my belly button birthday. And uh, I was cleaning up all the wreckage in my past at work. Now, these are guys who wanted nothing to do with me. They were nice to me because of my dad. Otherwise, they just throw me in a trash can. They want to know part of me. But I'm working. I'm showing up early, staying late. I'm giving a full day's work. I'm even buying coffee for the guys, which was unheard of. Because if you gave me coffee money back then, I don't come back for three days. I walked into work. It was right after lunch, actually. And a bunch of these longshoremen says, hey, kid, come over here. They knew it was my birthday. And they called me into this. We worked out of these things that looked like toll boots. And they had their version of a uh, birthday cake. And they had a little candle in there. And about six longshoremen, this was a sight, they're singing happy birthday to me. They can't sing. But I remember thinking, oh, my God. And they all gave me a hug and a peck on the cheek and pats on the back and you're doing good and we're so proud of you and, and things like that. Keep going to the, the A&A place because it's working, they would tell me. I remember thinking, like, these are guys who wanted nothing to do with me. When I came back to work, everyone was holding their breath. These are guys who had, like, a, you know the football pools? They had a pool on when I was going to get drunk again. And here they are. They got a little birthday cake and were singing happy birthday to me. And the soul recognized all of that because the soul picks up your soul and vice versa. On how blessed I was, I was a longshoreman doesn't require much education. You make some money, not a whole bunch. I wasn't making a fortune. But I had a job, I was employed, and now I had respect of people who didn't respect me at one time. And I remember going to the phone and calling my sponsors, that's God and Alcoholics Anonymous. Why'd you expect anything different? A big book says nine out of ten times the, mo- the unexpected thing happens. That was unexpected. I came back from lunch and these men had a little thing for me. And I was walking to work, as my dad used to teach me, always head up and shoulder square. Not arrogant, not pompous, just head up and shoulder square. And I was walking with head up and shoulder square. 
because I knew God had his eye on me and was bringing me good stuff and removing all the poison from my body. I'm sober 34 years now. There's a lot of work ahead of me still. There's less road in front of me, a lot more behind me, but there's a lot more work in front of me. I have to be a fool to think I, I'm done, I've done it, I got the work, I can speak, and I'm done. Absolutely not. Because God will feed me stuff in his way, in his time, things to work on. And I don't know, as I stand here tonight, I can't think of any harms I've caused to anyone, but if the night is young, and I don't know what's going to happen an hour from now, and tomorrow's a new day, and something might, I might say something inappropriate. I might harm someone. I'm human. I will fall short. I just hope it isn't a bad harm. I hope it's nothing at all. So that's why I go through the work at least once a year. Because what I'm seeking now is, is transformation, not just information. Anyone can go home and study this book and come back and recite it. If you go to enough meetings, you'll run into folks who, who talk in, a buddy of mine says they talk in quotes. They quote the big book for one hour, and I don't know who they are. I need to have a transformation with the information. Why? Because my life depends upon it, having conscious contact with God. It tells me in my book, if I'm painstaking about this phase of my development, painstaking with great care and thoroughness, I'm not just doing a quick walkthrough like it's a homework assignment. From when I got in with step one to where I stand in step nine, it has been painstaking for one reason. I'm not that smart. I'm not that good. But my life depends upon this. Not memorizing the information, but hoping this information transforms me to be locked into God, to having conscious contact with God. Because without it, I'm drunk, because I'm an alcoholic. I get drunk. That's what I do. If I'm painstaking about this phase of my development, I will be amazed before I'm halfway through. And, you know, you get those little God shots, like, oh, my God, I just worked 40 hours, and I go back Monday, and I'm okay with that. I have money in my pocket the week after payday. I've made two meetings a day for the last two weeks. Everyone in my home group knows me. I put my head on a pillow at night, and I can go to sleep. I'm amazed. I'll tell you what was one, and I know it sounds silly, but when I first got uh, sober and started the work, I got my first apartment, <clears throat> and I was amazed that I could put on clean jeans and clean sneakers and a clean shirt and I was clean shaven and my hair was clean and my body was clean and my hygiene took on it was amazing it was that important to me that my fingernails were clean and I can walk into a meeting looking clean cut if you will because I never want to touch the street again how I used to live I was amazed that I walk into Macy's and say, I like that shirt. How much is it? 40 bucks. I have 40 bucks to buy a shirt and I can wear it walking into a meeting tonight. Not for compliments, but I was able to do it. Amazed that I can order food over the phone, have the money to pay for it. They can walk into a restaurant, not order, eat, and then run away. I did that a bunch of times that I was walking with some dignity and integrity because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was amazed before I was halfway through. <clears throat> and sometimes I wake up in the morning and I see Marion laying next to me and I'm amazed. 
that I get into bed with someone I absolutely adore and I wake up next to her. And it's not like, oh no, what did I do? That I don't raise my voice. I don't scream in the house. I'm amazed. I'm Italian. We holler for no reason. <laughs> when we say I love you, it sounds like a threat. I mean, you know. <laughs> I'm going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. If I thought I had freedom before, this is new. See, if I had a, if I had a whole bunch of whiskey, oh, this is great. I'm free. I can drink all I want. I got a pocket full of money. I thought that was free. I thought getting into the relationship, the honeymoon phase, oh, I'm free. I come into money, oh, I'm free. It's not freedom. They're talking about, they're talking about spiritual liberation here, a new freedom, something I never had before. And here's the cool thing. God's always making me freer. A new happiness, not contingent on, it's nice to have money and a nice job. I can't deny, I like nice things. But my, my, my happiness is not hooked into that because that's, that's, that's fickle. It comes and goes. My happiness is based on my relationship with this God and I'm a member of Good Standing and Alcoholics Anonymous. Why is it on Thursday we're excited to get up here? People would say it's just another meeting. No, it isn't. Monday night we go to a meeting in Deerfield Beach. We're excited to get there on a Monday. We go to a terrible diner, have terrible food, and a rotten cup of coffee. Let's do this again. <laughs> I will not regret the past and wish to shut the door on it. A lot of things in my life I've accepted. If I was well, I would have done it different. And the big book tells me that my past will become one of my greatest assets in helping a family or a drunk. But sometimes it isn't really morbid reflection. When I got to be careful, it can get into morbid reflection. Here comes the narrative, and I'm under it again. But sometimes I, I think about uh, what a lousy brother I was to my two kid brothers because alcoholism had me in its grip, and I pretty much abandoned them, and they became embarrassed around me. And sometimes I regret that. It hurts. You know, the, 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 the girl I was dating in high school was like, you know, your, your puppy love, and she was a nice person, and I broke her heart because I would drop her off and go back to New York and get drunk and womanize, and I, I broke her heart. I regret that. You know, the things I did with my family, my, it hurts. I always believed that the, the, the wounds will heal, but the scars may be forever. You know, my, my, my kid brother will call me every once in a while at a, at a time he normally doesn't call me. And he says, I had a dream about you last night. You were drinking again. He says, I woke up out of my sleep in terror. It felt so real. It's still there 34 years later. So a lot of things, I, 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 not that I don't regret, I've accepted. I, they have forgiven me. God has forgiven me. I found some forgiveness for myself. But not to the point where, well, that's the way it happened and you deal with it. That's arrogant. Maybe God just keeps me right size with that. But I don't shut the door on my past. I can't. Not in Alcoholics and I'm not in the walk. I'm free of that. To share, I do it when we speak. We do it when we sponsor people. I do it at my job in the business I'm in. I do it with other families when they call me. I've done it with family members being tactful and not distasteful. But I don't shut the door on my past because it's one of the things I need to share that when I'm sponsoring someone. 
I will comprehend the word serenity. This is unbelievable. I start to understand. It's not a thought, serenity. I start to understand what serenity is because experientially I can, I've had it. I can talk about it. I understand when someone says, I had a very serene day. I know what that's like because it's given to me. And I don't have to go down to the beach. I don't have to ohm. I don't have to meditate. I could be doing laundry. I've shared this a bunch of times. On a Saturday night, I could be doing laundry and find serenity in that because it beats the streets. On a Saturday night, there's a party somewhere, there's a conference somewhere, and I'm home with Marion watching something on Netflix, and it's serenity because I'm safe, secure, sober with God, serene. And sometimes I just get it in prayer and meditation. But the thing I've come to understand, it's always there. I just touch it once in a while. No matter how far down the scale I've gone, I will see how my experience can benefit others. I become, I have a purpose in my life, and I get to serve. I'm not preoccupied with me and every feeling I have and everything that's about me. I'm no longer centered in me, but in God. And again, I want to reiterate, do none of this perfect. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I lose interest in selfish things, gain interest in my fellows. Back on page 62, which talking about all about me, page 63 says it's less about me, what I can contribute to life. They remind me that again. It's not about me. In fact, we, we evolve to a place where it's not about me. It's like, who's the new guy? Standing by the door, who's new? Who are the white chippers? <clears throat> what can I do for other people? It's just the way we, we move now. The soul is operating. Coming up to sunrise, we get off at sunrise on 95, and that's how we get here. There's always a panhandler. Almost every week, we roll down the window and give money. How could we just drive by? Well, sometimes coming home from work, you see a panhandler, and I got a couple of dollars in my pocket. How could I just drive by? Because it's not only an AA. It's easy to be spiritual in an AA meeting. Everyone's watching me. How am I out there when I really need to do God's work? Having a servant's heart. That's an awakening. Self-seeking will slip away. My whole attitude uh, uh, an outlook upon life will change. I'm given new eyes. I'm given new ears. I'm given a new, new words. It's not what, what goes in the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out, and it's coming now from the soul mm. because it's been awakened. I'll intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle me. We all know what that's like if you're here a little while. That's that something in here that you can't, you can't define it. I mean, we call it God, but, and even the language is not like someone speaking to us, but we hear it that way. It's just something that says, go over to that guy. Why? I don't know. Find out he's got one day back. Something says, go to that meeting tonight, but I never go there. You go, and you find out you needed to be there. Go to work early. Why? I don't know. And you walk in, there's a crisis. Whatever it might be, call that friend. I called a buddy of mine from the West Coast the other night. Something's been telling me, call him. Call him. Call him. He was so grateful. I only see him at conference. He was so grateful. I call. He says, your voice, oh, my God, it's so good to hear from you. And we talked for a bit. That was intuitiveness. Can't really define it. Just a, something in it. It's a movement. It's a calling. 
And many of the things I was baffled by, just, just God gives us the know-how. This has probably happened to a bunch of you guys. They ask you, you're speaking on step three. What are you going to talk about? I have no idea. And you get up here and suddenly here it comes. I love when I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Because that means I'm out of the way. It's not a prepared, I'm going to talk about this, then do that, and then do this. I, I'd rather, what are you talking about? I have no clue. We'll find out in about 10 minutes. <laughs> because I don't worry about it. Because this talk should be a reflection of what I did earlier today, yesterday, the day before, the day before that, the year before that, and so on. I don't have to make stuff up to sound nice and glossy. And I suddenly realize that God's doing for me what I can't do for myself. That's not a one-time thing. It's constantly happening. Oh, my God, I'm sober another day. Oh, my God, I ate again. Oh, my God. It feels like it's just happening, but it's happening all the time. And so I chop wood and carry water. And that family that was just torn apart, ripped apart from my mom's sickness and me moving in and taking over with my addiction. And really dismantling what was left of relationships in my family. My grandmother, who's your typical Italian grandmother from the other side, would invite everyone in for dinner. Said, you can't come back here anymore. Little by slowly, that got put back together. I remember sitting with my, both my grandparents my grandfather didn't understand English. My grandmother interpreted what I was doing, and he just waved and gave me a kiss. Just waved it away. The power of God to, to fix, to reconcile this stuff. I need to be a willing participant. So when you walk into a family reunion in the Marinelli family, you don't see butterflies you know, and, and hops and rainbows and nice uh, meditation music. We're loud and we're obnoxious. But somehow me and my brothers and my dad, with all our broken pieces, we walk. We walk. We lean on each other. It's all because of God and Alcoholics Anonymous that I can call my dad and have a conversation with him and my brothers can call me, and, and, and they know where I am. I'm home, at work, or at a meeting. Not where is he. What great rewards we can bring to people, this godly spirit, that I'm reliable and dependable again. And I've done nothing. I've done nothing. I screwed up my life. I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and you, on a silver platter, gave me a set of instructions that took me to this God that keeps me sober with head up and shoulder square for this. I'm forever grateful. I owe, I owe, I owe so much to AA. That's all I got. Peace. Let's give Peter another hand. So now I'm going to call up for the secretary report. Hey guys, my name is Mark. I'm your fill-in recovered alcoholic secretary. Our pal is off tonight. My pal. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall... Be fully self-supporting, declining out to contributions. The baskets are now going to go around. 
while these gentlemen are passing the baskets, I've asked Tyler, 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 hey Tyler, to come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Here's Tyler. Good evening. My name is Tyler. I'm an alcoholic. I recovered. We are not cured from alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The, aller the allergic, oh, wait. allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came in and really tried, fifty percent of them got sober at once and remained that way. Twenty-five percent of them sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics in the room tonight? Good, decent number, huh? Uh, more importantly, um, reason why we gather here, does anyone here need a sponsor in the room? Nobody needs a sponsor. Okay. If you do and you're too shy to reveal yourself to the room, see one of the folks with the raised, uh, their hands raised, please. <laughs> um, folks with, your, with the hands raised, let's get these folks back to God, if there is anyone. Last meeting of the month. That's not tonight. Um, we have some events going on in AA. AA is a fun place. Uh, most importantly, intergroup. <laughs> Intergroup is where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Intergroup is also responsible for creating the where and when, scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and visit them. I think they're still open Saturday, maybe. You'll have to find out. Uh, BCIC is Broward County Institu <laughs> Institutions Committee. Uh, this group is, well, first of all, anyone involved with that in the room? No, okay, so... I'm not either, but I'll tell you about it. It's responsible for bringing, <laughs> bringing meetings in the places where people like us can't get out to AA. Jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly to uh, organize the meeting schedules. They meet right down on State Road 84 at the 12-step house. Some of you may know it. Uh, there's some upcoming service opportunities here in Broward County. There's flyers in the back of the room. Um, carry the message day. A uh, big event here after Peter's done. We have Karina D. Uh, I think she's from Davie, Florida. She's doing three sessions in September, or the last two weeks in September. The first week in October, we'll be happy to have her come here and speak. We'll be sorry to see Peter go, though. Then after that, we got Joe B. from my hometown of Pompano Beach, Florida. Um, 
He's doing the fall series. Um, <laughs> October to December, we'll be wrapping up the year with Joe. It's always good to see Joe here. And that's Joey's home group, Monday night. Um, we meet here on the third floor. We do a little big book study upstairs. Um, big book comes alive. Of course, um, join us for fellowship at 6.30. Workshop starts at 7.15. There in the back where those guys are standing, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, big book dictionaries for sale. We meet here every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15. Peter's got a couple more weeks left. He'll be back next week. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you. We have tonight's sessions and all past speaker podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. Everyone is invited to our Monday night big book study. And also, those whom wish to thank tonight's speaker to please line up in the center aisle. And let's close with the Lord's Prayer, right where we are. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is heavy, soul is thirsty, bodies aching.
Here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Now, growing vines, they 
twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time right outside my door. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Take me, take me. Got one man that just won't say. 